Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner and you are listening to Pregnancy Parenting and Politics, the podcast where that's what we talk about. Now it seems like these days, the only topic on anyone's mind is the coronavirus and how life has changed so drastically in such a short period of time for literally everyone on earth. Now during our last episode, I talked about silver linings that we're all seeing as a result of being shut in, like dramatically improved air quality, reduced carbon emissions, and resource utilization. These are good things. I'm also thinking about some of the big problems this quarantine has at least temporarily solved, like we're not holding our breaths over the next mass shootings anymore, and with you know nobody out on the streets, it's a lot safer for many women to go out for you know a walk or a run. These are not small things. And I wonder if when this is all over, if there will be a new normal where these problems are miraculously solved. Wouldn't that be something? That'd be a silver lining. Some people are experiencing really intense hardship, including healthcare workers, food service workers, and everybody who's lost their jobs. Also, thousands of families around the world who have lost family members and friends and loved ones to this virus. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I believe in focusing on silver linings, but I'm not going to ignore the real suffering going on in the world. Um, back in February, we had a good conversation with Kimberly Seals Allers about racism and bias in relation to birth. Now, I have to admit uh, the sound quality on that episode was horrible, and we're cleaning that up and re-releasing that pretty soon. But I wanted to talk with Kimberly again because she recently wrote an article for Women's E-News titled COVID-19 Restrictions on Birth and Breastfeeding Disproportionately Harming Black and Native Women. Um, now that came out, that was published on March 27th, 2020. And Kimberly is among my favorite guests, and I'm really grateful that today we get to talk to her again. But before we get Kimberly on the line, I wanted to let you all in on a really special project I've been working on with my friend, Rosie Acosta. Now, Rosie was our guest back in January, where we talked about her infertility journey. She is a globally celebrated yoga teacher and writer, and um, she and I team up to teach creative writing and yoga workshops together. We're moving these workshops online. And next Saturday, April 11th at 10 a.m. PST, we're doing a special webinar on Zoom to teach you how to get your creative ideas out of your head and onto the page. We're keeping the price super low, only $40. And all the info you need will be on today's show notes. I'll also put the info out on Pregnancy Parenting and Politics Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as my website. So if you've got a creative idea that you are just dying to put into action and get out of your head and onto the page, Rosie and I will teach you how to do it. It's only an hour, and I know you're mostly just hanging out at home thinking about creative things you want to do, right? So don't miss it. Come RSVP and join us. Now, Let's take a real, real quick break, and then when we get back, we'll get this week's guest on the line. Okay, we're back, and we're ready to talk with Kimberly Seals-Allers. Kimberly is an award-winning journalist, 
author of five books, international speaker, strategist, and advocate for maternal and infant health. She's a former senior editor at Essence, a writer at Fortune Magazine, and Kimberly is also a leading commentator on birth, breastfeeding, and motherhood, and the intersection of race, policy, and culture. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, and others. Let's get Kimberly on the line. Hey, Kimberly, it's Jeannie. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm hanging in there. This is what, week four? Do we even know anymore? What week is it? I think we've all last lost count. I don't know what day it is, so the weeks are definitely challenging. I know. We've been we've been doing this forever and ever. That's what Yeah. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. And it's gonna go on for as far in the future as we can see. Isn't this something? Yeah. It is something, and we don't know if we'll ever get back to the normal that we knew. Um, there will likely be a new normal in many areas of our life, and so we just have to be prepared for that. I mean, things are shifting day by day. I know. Um, I know. And it's, it's very unsettling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, before you and I go too far down this conversation, because we have a lot to talk about today, let's <laughs> get you to answer the first question. Now, I've already read your incredible bio before we picked up the line today, but the hard question is always, who are you and what do you do? Ah, well, I'm a mother, um, and what I do is try to improve the experience of motherhood for all women. Um, that's my short answer for today. Yeah, and you were on the podcast just last month, and... The answer to the question, and what do you do, is really different this month because we're all doing what we do at home now, right? Yes, it's so true. And actually, you know, more of us are doing what we do at home. Some of us who may have been used to working from home have never been used to working with our children being home all the time while we're doing that. Um, and also perhaps, you know, hopefully – those with partners are getting a little bit of uh, a share, and perhaps those partners are having an awakening about um, what all, all the things that women are doing, that mothers are doing um, in the home. So it's it's a time of enlightenment for everybody. Yeah, it really is. I'm seeing that it's really different. Um, you know, I my kids are adults. My youngest is 20, and my oldest is in her early 30s, and we are, many of us, many of the kids have come home so that we could all be in this together. And um, specifically so that my oldest wouldn't be isolated in her apartment alone in New York. And oh my goodness, it's so different having the house full again of adult children. And everybody sort of has their own pace and rhythm and they're doing their thing. But the same squabbles that come up you know, not necessarily squabbles, but issues that come up when kids are all teenagers or kids are all little. It's the same thing, just on an adult level. It's really something. It's remarkable, really. I'm sure there's going to be many, you know, psychology or sociology studies about this, uh, about this period. But certainly, one is about family dynamics. And you know, my my oldest is 20, so she's come home from college. Um, but certainly. 
you know, she had lived in the house full time in only two years, but still there was a readjustment, right? Because of my son and I got into our own rhythm because it's been just the two of us, um, you know, primarily. And she was this mark of visitor <laughs> uh, for the time that she was home. And so it is a very interesting thing about family dynamics and, you know, probably reverting back to old dynamics even after time, right? You just, you're in the house, the house feel comfortable and it, it brings out certain things. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. One of the things that's happened, I love it. And it is that my oldest daughter has taken on um, most of the responsibility for sort of household management stuff. Like I cook dinner maybe once or twice a week now instead of every night. I don't go to the grocery store. She's taking care of all of that. I feel a little bit like I have a wife. I love this. <laughs> I love this. I love this it. This is very important, and I have always been um, a big fan of empowering the children to, to do more. You know, my, my daughter is here, uh, and, and actually my son has a night that he cooks dinner, and she has a night that she cooks dinner. Um, yesterday was her turn to do the small grocery one. I do the big ones because it's still a little bit scary going to grocery stores in New York City. Um, and, uh, but, you know, this has been a big theme of my parenting, which is how much can the kids do to chip in? Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. In fact, it's so funny because one of my most, uh, and I mean probably close to 10,000 likes on this tweet was me talking about my daughter who, when she got her driver's license, she immediately became my driver because I'm like, oh no, I've been driving you around for all these years. You're going to drive me around. And so we have a joke about that because I call her my Uber from my uterus or Uberist. <laughs> for short. <laughs> and so I crack a lot of jokes about my Ubers and you know, I shared about it on social media, shared a picture of her driving me around, um, which gives me a lot of joy. But yeah, I'm really big on you need to pitch in and we're in this together and um, I shouldn't be carrying all this load by myself at a certain age. So yeah. yeah. All my kids have great news for you. Yeah. It, but you know, they've, they've all, I've never had trouble with kids doing chores. They just do them. I mean, the house is messy. We clean it. No big deal. Not like so many families have. They just butt heads on that. And I've never had that issue. But there always has to be somebody in the adult category who is the house manager, you know, the one who makes sure all of that stuff gets done. And I am just stepping way back. And she's stepped right up front. And she's excellent at it. It's so cool. I love that. Yeah. It is very cool. Love it. Perfect. Yeah. This is what happens when your children grow up and they're fabulous. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot yeah, of our always say that they, you, know, you, get the, you put in the work on the front end and it pays off on the back end. Darn That's right. the goal. Darn right. And a lot of a lot of our listeners today are brand new parents and, you know, they're still mm. changing diapers and wiping noses and they cannot even imagine what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we want to tell them that there is hope on the other end. There will be other challenges, but it won't be these but these ones, you know, and that there's a little bit more of a joint uh, partnership relationship versus in the early days where it's just give, 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 and they just take, 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 and that's just the nature of the game in the early days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I I've often talked about how, you get them to be the point where they're these great, self-reliant, intelligent, 
high-functioning adults, and then we send them off to college just when they've gotten so good. And we're all in this um, unique situation right now. Not all of us, but many families are where our kids are home, our adult kids are home. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about how it kind of reverts back to family dynamics, but it's also this great thing where you get to live with your adult kids. They're pretty cool. I like them. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole different level of conversation. You know, the ways that we're able to discuss, you know, obviously current events and what's going on or politics or even talk about food and cooking. I mean, it's, it is a whole other level of conversation, um, which I, you know, also thoroughly enjoy. And like you, I was very sad to see my daughter move away from college. I was like, dang it, I just got to, you know, I just special a single mother because she would, she was definitely a big help for me. And, you know, she, she could drive her brother to practice if I couldn't be there because I was working and you know it was a big readjustment for me when she went off the college and of course you never limit your children I never told her that but um but yeah I mean you can you know you see that they can help out um and, and play a different role in the family and you know it's it's important to me that they do that yeah yeah so how are you <clears throat> what's life like in the time of coronavirus for you. And you're you're in New York, right? I, I do live in New York. Um, and I live in Queens, so I'm in one of the outer boroughs, so I'm not in Manhattan, where obviously um, things are particularly bad, in Brooklyn. I'm also blessed in the area that I live in Queens. You know, it's not a... Uh, that area where we're, you know, in, in an apartment building, living on top of each other, the way many people do, you know, in, in some of the more dense areas of the city. So, you know, we're able to function. I, I actually live in a community that's gated, so, you know, I, I take my daily runs. I've been running every day with the children, which has been fun. But we do our runs around the development. You know, it takes us three times to get a mile uh, and a half. And, you know, we've just been adjusting. Um, thankfully, I am used to working from home, but I am not used to doing so with two other, you know, big people in the house. So that's an adjustment. I had turned my daughter's room into my office, mm-hmm. which, you know, I figured two years was a good enough time. She was definitely staying. Um, so, you know, we definitely had some reconfigurations and moving some furniture. But, um, you know, mostly just trying to find a new schedule. Um, as, as we try to figure out, you know, online school, obviously my daughter's taking her classes online, my son's at online school, I'm, I work online, um, and obviously, so it's just been uh, uh, an adjustment. Um, outside of that, you know, I have the normal anxiety of most parents. I was really struggling, I think, as a single mom, because um, one of the things that I just realized like, two nights ago when I was having a moment of feeling pretty anxious that I have been blessed that um, my parents have been a great support to me. And when I have to travel for work for an extended period of time, they're well enough to come up and stay with my children and help me out. But I do not have that option right now. You know, my parents are in a high-risk category, and they need to be avoided. And, you know, just this, this idea of all of our social supports being upended and not being available was just really freaking me out because God forbid I got sick. I don't have any, you know, I don't have any relatives, no, no direct siblings in, in state and certainly not in New York City. Um, you know, the, my, my typical go-to is not available to me. 
And, you know, it was certainly around anxiety where I had to sit down and start planning and talking to friends around, you know, wait, what would happen if I got sick? And, you know, so that has been a, a, a source of anxiety for me. Um, but besides for that, you know, just trying to do the best we can, we've been certainly staying in. You know, staying safe. We go out when it's necessary around food. We've been doing a lot of cooking at home, which is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to keep ourselves safe as much as we can. Lots of hand washing with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like it's the, the story of the nation. And indeed, the mm-hmm. world. The world right now, for the most part. So, I want to go ahead yes. and dive right in about the article you wrote for Women's E-News this last week. And... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And it's tied, I mentioned the title earlier, but I, it's a powerful one. COVID-19 restrictions on birth and breastfeeding disproportionately harming black and native women. And I, I think, um, let's start with some of the restrictions. So maybe you can explain why, I mean, I talked last week on my episode about what hospitals are doing to try to limit the exposure of pregnant women and other members of the family um, <clears throat> from both getting and spreading coronavirus. And then just in the amount of time between my recording that and, and today, some of those restrictions have gotten really strict and I wanted you to kind of explain some of that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's been a constantly changing situation, and it's also a situation that varies by state. So, you know, as I mentioned in the article, New York City was one of those areas that had a incredibly restrictive policy where they were saying that nobody could come in with a birthing parent um, at all. And that was incredibly alarming. Um, and obviously, in, in the space of not being tested, everybody's being treated as if they are potentially infected. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, we've seen the gamut from that, which I believe some variation is now coming to California, which is unfortunate, um, to, you know, people allowing only one person. Um, and just to give a New York City update, you know, the New York Health Department, in fact, our governor said, and, you know, he's been very busy with his uh, well-publicized press conferences that he basically said that that was not going to be permissible, that they would not go to the birth alone, and that one person was going to be allowed with him. Um, and obviously that is, you know, a, a more a greater sign of reason, but now, you know, women are having to choose between perhaps their husband or partner and the doula, right? And mothers are jokingly saying that they'll take the doula any day over their husband, but <laughs> their husbands may not agree. Right, right. <laughs> And they shouldn't you know, have to decide. I mean, you need and, both. And they shouldn't have to decide. Yeah. Right. And then on the other cases where many doulas have been asking to be able to provide virtual support, hospitals have resisted the idea of a Skype or a Zoom or whatever because, of course, now it's recorded and they don't want the liability issue. So now it's like, well, maybe you can call your doula on the phone, which isn't the same for her being able to see what's going on, right. you know? So none of this is in the best interest of mothers and babies. And, you know, as I was saying, the article was very distressing to me in the reporting is that there is no law that protects women. There is no law that says you don't have to birth alone. Um, and so, 
you know, it really is, as we know, exposing the gaps in our systems overall um, through this pandemic experience, but particularly the way that it is failing um, women and, and birthing people. And so it was very distressing uh, in reporting this piece to see all the gaps. And I was, you know, it was deeply distressing. Do you find any um, irony in the fact that there are hundreds of laws that restrict women's reproductive rights, but there are very few that protect her reproductive rights, especially in a circumstance like this? You know? Oh, absolutely. And I think the history of, you know, the, 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 the kind of relationship between systems and, and women's bodies has always been one of control and oppression um, and really making laws to prevent us from doing things, to stop us from accessing things, and not many laws actually supporting our rights, uh, which are really human rights, if we're honest, you know? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> how do these laws disproportionately harm black and native women? Well, Jeannie, I mean, here's what we know. We know that black women in particular and then followed by native women are the ones that in multiple studies have reported the highest levels of mistreatment during, particularly during birth, but also during, you know, prenatal care, postpartum care. Um, this is very much connected to what we're learning about the role of bias in healthcare, you know, connected to what my, my work is with Earth and the Earth app. But, and so when, when we know that there are women who disproportionately are being mistreated within the system, and then we take that system and it's overstressed, it's overstretched, its members are overstretched, you know, the, the workers in the professionals in it are overstretched, we know that's only going to lead to more cases of, um, mistreatment and and that leads to poor outcomes the other thing that we know is that multiple studies have proven that the presence of doulas improves birth outcomes for black women particularly and that you know much of the mistreatment and the things that go wrong for black women that's connected to the black the very high black maternal mortality rate um, is something related to not having anyone advocating for you there within that birthing experience and so this is why part of the reason why doulas are very much connected to what we know about reducing black maternal mortality in their role to to advocate for you in that in that situation um, in their role to be able to look after you after birth to make sure there's not something being ignored um, that has often led to hemorrhaging and and all types of complications that have led to death because black women are being ignored and so now you're looking at the group who was disproportionately mistreated in, in the, um, uh, during birth, you're looking at the women who disproportionately benefit, whose outcomes improve with the presence of doula and then doulas, and you're removing that. So now you've added a double layer of extra risk, risk and threat to their experience. Meanwhile, all women are being exposed to this. And so we know that um, this will disproportionately and has been disproportionately harming black women and native women um, who in most studies come up as second most likely being mistreated during birth. Um, and so it's, 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 it's a problem um, and it's a problem. And so there's been a huge overreaction um, by the hospitals who clearly have concerns but don't consider the importance of mothers and babies staying together and mothers having support during birth. So one thing that I would like to do is get 
kind of specific about mistreatment because I know that a lot of listeners are listening to this and you know if they've already had a baby they're thinking what is she talking about my labor and delivery team was fabulous however that is not the experience that many 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 black women and native women women of color have so I'm wondering if you could kind of drill down on that a little bit yeah, I mean, if you look at the study, and the link is in the article, it was everything from being yelled at um, during birth, uh, very disrespectful comments. Many of them have had um, uh, shouted at, I'm, I'm going to read it straight from the study, shouted at, scolded by, healthcare professional was the most common reported form of mistreatment, being ignored, refusing their requests for help, failing to respond to requests for help um, in a reasonable manner. Some women reported violations of physical privacy. Um, and, okay, I'm trying to read one more and threatening to withhold treatment or forcing them to accept treatment they did not want, right? And so kind of using a lot of threatening language, and if you don't do this, your baby's going to die. We hear that a lot. Um, if you don't do this, people are threatening to call social services on, yeah. on, on black women. Yeah. And we hear this constantly. Um, and even just in the last week, the screenshots of text messages from women who have given birth in New York City, particularly black and brown women, you know, sharing their experiences, let's say, with their doula about how it's being yelled at. Um, you know, people are stressed, and, and it's, it's just very unfortunate. But these are some of the, the specific, specific things that happening um, that this study uncovered, which had over 2,700 respondents, um, and also some of the things that we hear when we, you know, are serving women with Earth. Yeah, yeah. That Those complaints don't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. It, I think that it surprises a lot of women, especially white women, because they don't experience it in the same way. Although white women who come from, you know, communities that have a lot of poverty, white women who are working jobs that are not necessarily white collar, oh, they get a lot of that too. Not to the same degree, but... It's really amazing to me how socially stratified our healthcare system remains. Absolutely. And, you know, just to add another layer to that, Judy, what I find as well is also around age. You know, we see young mothers, you know, often regardless of class, uh, mistreated, you know, a very patriarchal tone around, you know, the fact that they're a young mom or a teen mom. Right. So there's, there's also another kind of, I don't even know if it's a moral judgment strain or just a judgment strain that is also very common, um, particularly if you're a young mother. I mean, these, it's, it's, you really don't have much say so and nobody's listening to you or respecting you at all. Right. So we see these, um, this mistreatment happening at many intersections, which is deeply troubling, right? Um, which shows that there is a real systemic problem. Um, and it's not one type of woman racially. It's not one type of woman class-wise, you know. It's, so it's like, this is ridiculous, people. Yeah. Yeah, it's about power and control and assumptions and things that people have learned that just aren't true. And it's about patriarchy, even when... Mm-hmm. Even when the providers, the healthcare providers, are women, this is a system that was built by the patriarchy. 
now I, I want to talk about, I, I want to kind of segue off of that into the birth system that is built by the matriarchy, which is midwifery. But before we talk about midwifery, I want to talk about um, something that you mentioned in the article about uh, breastfeeding, about how babies are being taken away from their mothers in the delivery room for no darn good reason. And I wonder if you would explain that. Why are they doing that? <laughs> I wish, you know, we all want to know. I mean, part of the issue is that, to be fair, there were conflicting guidelines between the World Health Organization and the CDC, right? So the CDC was kind of saying separate and then find out, right, which is kind of like shoot and then ask and then ask questions. And the World Health Organization was saying that actually, you know, keeping the mother together has many benefits for baby. And, you know, if there is a... Uh, you know, suspicion or concern, then better for the mother to protect herself, wear a mask, wash her hands, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, again, the goal from the World Health Organization was let's not disrupt this very important mother-baby diet at its very vulnerable time. So, um, so there was there was that, and I think that in the space of the CDC guidelines not being clear, it gave hospitals license to, you know, kind of use that as a I won't say excuse, but lack of a better word, to create these very um, strict and necessary policies around mom and baby separation. And so since then, I know that I think ACOG has come out with a recommendation. Um, I know there was a very well uh, circulated post from um, the Harvard Medical School um, around the need for babies to stay together. But again, when there is a crisis, the first go-to maneuver is suppression of women, right? Mm -hmm. Separate them from their babies, mm -hmm. keep them from having support. There's no room for actual nuance or understanding what is best for whom in this situation. And so that's the troubling trend. You know, not that we all don't understand that we're dealing with a novel virus and they're going to be, you know, a need to err on the side of caution. Everybody can get that. But the, the knee-jerk reaction seems to be, you know, just separate and, and suppress women versus even thinking about how do we do that, like, take the caution, but preserve something that's really important. A couple things come to mind. It, one is that it doesn't surprise me that the World Health Organization has different standards around that than the CDC, because the CDC is from America, and many of those opinions are formed based on the American healthcare system's way of doing things. And the World Health Organization has experts from around the globe that take into consideration different ways of doing things, not just the way American healthcare does it. And a lot, I agree. a lot of professionals around the world are kind of horrified by our healthcare system and how punitive it is, how expensive it is. And the other thing that I think about is when you separate a mother and a baby in the American healthcare system, you it's very likely that you then add to that woman's birth expense because you add nursery fees, which... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you know, you're going to add nursery fees, right? Um, there are going to be things that are happening that it's going to be extra time and extra actually wear and tear on nurses. We know what that interruption can do for breastfeeding in terms of interrupting breastfeeding, disturbing the natural 
you know, biological response of birth in terms of your milk flow, et cetera, et cetera, which now makes you more likely to become reliant or, or turn to formula, like the commercial aspects of that one decision and the knock-on effects of that, you know, are just, are, 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 are many. Um, and many of them, to your point, have a financial interest involved. And that's really disturbing. Yeah. I have this fantasy that one of the silver linings about the coronavirus is that uh, America is going to finally recognize the need for universal health care because this is going to be financially dis devastating on so many levels in the healthcare industry. And, you know, maybe, maybe a girl can dream, right? No, I agree. I agree. I don't know if you saw the piece in the New York Times. I think the title was uh, During a Pandemic, Everyone's a Socialist, right? And so, which is absolutely true. And I think I, I'm hopeful as well that everybody, you know, everybody has been laid bare to the gaps in our system. Um, and that if there's anything that we can, that will come out of it, I hope that it is an appreciation that, you know, our healthcare system is really crappy, um, really? for lack of a more technical word, yeah. um, and that the way it treats women, you know, mothers and, and infants is abominable and needs to be changing. So, you know, in addition to your dream, I'm dreaming for a female uprising around birthrights, you yeah. know, as another way that our eyes have been opened about the ways that this system doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping for that, too, so we can add it to our silver lining list. <laughs> now, the silver lining list is pretty, I, I'm keeping it in, you know, front of my mind. One of the things that I, is a silver mining, a silver lining for me is air quality is so much better right now. That's one of them. Yes, another very one, true. Yeah, another one is we don't have to worry about mass shootings right now. There is no mass. That is very true. And someone was talking about the, 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 the lower levels of crime, right? Yeah. yeah. No, no mass shootings right now. Yeah. Though. Very important. Yeah. I won't be surprised, though, if crime rates um, go up a little bit right now because, you know, rent was due day before yesterday and a lot of people who don't have money are getting desperate and um, you know desperate people do desperate things to survive so yes, I'm wondering that, that is very true I, I am concerned about the desperation that's about to sink in and not I don't know whether it's around rent but certainly food I mean I'm still seeing empty shelves yeah. I'm seeing food prices skyrocket you should yeah. tell what the price was on, on the chicken the other day I was like are you kidding me yeah. Um, and so, you know, that is, you know, it's one thing to be like, okay, well, I know that at least in New York City, I, I can't get kicked out of my home. They put a moratorium on evictions, okay? Yeah. But I need to eat. Right. And right now, food prices are going up the roof, and and that's if you can find it, you know. Um, we were talking yesterday about people with transportation issues. God forbid that you had one shot to get to the grocery store, um, and now you've gotten there, and you, it doesn't even have everything that you need now. Right. You know, I mean, these are real, real issues for families yeah. to, you know, just for something basic around getting the food that your family needs. Yeah, yeah. And then what? Get 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 on a bus with 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 a bunch of people to try to go to another store. I had to go to three stores myself just to get the things on my list. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And thankfully, being able to drive. So it's it really is bad. To go back to your comment about socialism. Mm. 
so many Americans are afraid of that word because they equate it with you know, society like in Russia or socialism that um, we fought against in World War II. But the fact is, is that if your kids go to public school, that's socialism. If you, um, you know, we've got a police department and a fire department that is paid for by federal taxes and serves everyone, that's socialism. So we're mm-hmm. so darn picky about what it is, you know? It's okay to have some. And we aren't even aware, that, right? I mean, Social Security is a form of socialism. It's a yeah. safety net, you know, for for adults. And so, um, I mean, I think that they've turned the word into a boogeyman, which unfortunately prevents people from understanding its nuances, right? And so, you know, hopefully, you know, one day, maybe we just take the word off and talk about the things. So you know, we don't have to call it socialism, but yeah, yeah, you know, right now everybody wants to feel that they, that they could get a test without cost. You know, they should not be charged, and that's something that everyone should be feel able to do. Okay, let's just call it free testing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we don't have to give it a big a big name. Let's just focus on the things that people want um, and feel like they deserve, particularly at this time. And, and what, what that's called, worry about that down the road yeah yeah well let's get back to the topic at hand um Mm -hmm. we segued off there that was fun um let's talk a little bit more about breastfeeding and about safe ways that women can get breastfeeding support um while still observing social distance distancing i mean because in the good Mm -hmm. old days when it was available if a woman went home from the hospital and she had trouble with breastfeeding, then she might be able to go to a lactation consultant or she might be able to go to a breastfeeding group or someone might be able to come to her home to help her, but not so much right now. No, not so much right now. And so we're seeing all elements of this experience really upended by this crisis. And I also just wanted to say, as, as a, a precursor to my answer, that when we talk about what's disproportionately harming black women, you know, one of the things that we've been able to do to help work on these, these racial disparities in breastfeeding rates, black women have had the lowest rates of breastfeeding in this country for over 40 years, right? And so that's a disparity that existed for far too long. Um, and one of the things that we've learned through the work and have been proven by research for people who care about those types of things is that peer support models uh, work better for encouraging breastfeeding, particularly for black and Latino women. Um, community approaches where people are together, where they can see other moms who look like them and may have a shared experience, come from where they come from. All of these things have been really proven and have been really firing up uh, in, in the breastfeeding community to help support mothers differently. Um, and just to be clear, even for me, when I had um, my, my son and I was breastfeeding and I lived in Long Island and I went to the La Leche Week meeting and there was nobody who looked like me. Not a one. And, um, you know, and La Leche Lee does amazing work. But, and also, at, for many, many years, one, they were focused on white suburban neighborhoods, and two, they were focused on women who were not working. And unfortunately, women of color have you know, not had that privilege to the same extent. So even for me, I had taken a one-year um, unpaid leave, but I was going back to work. And I went to the meeting looking for support. Not only did I not find anyone who looked like me, but certainly my lived experience, someone who could help me figure out how to do this and go back to work 
was not available. So we want to think about what type of support has been out there, number one, and how this has disproportionately harmed black women and other women of color because of the context of our lives. And so when we think about all of that being kind of abruptly taken away, um, what has happened, and this is great news, uh, there's been a lot of adaptation to virtual support. I mean, thankfully, we all have um, smartphones, and many can FaceTime or whatever the, you know, the Android equivalent is, and so people are increasingly turning to uh, virtual support to help people in their homes. Um, you know, you can collect patients so they can see, perhaps watch your baby feeding um, to, to give you some advice, and so we've seen a huge pivot to offering virtual support, um, and that is important until we can all be together again. Yeah, yeah. I know that group prenatal care, which started, I think, with Centering Pregnancy, um, mm-hmm. that's been a huge boost for... Huge. Huge, huge, especially if, if the, the pregnancy group continues into the postpartum period for providing support and community and the ability for women to um, you know, go through the stages of this incredible stage of life together with other people who are going through it at the same time. And that's not happening right now. Right. Yeah. And absolutely. I mean, going back to my point that if you're looking at across the spectrum what is working for women in birth and breastfeeding, it is community models. It's not meant to be an isolated event, you know. And so um, as that is all taken away and stripped down, down to the bare bones of birthing by yourself, it's a catastrophe. And in the piece I talk about kind of turning, you know, the, the pandemic will, 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 it will end at some point, but the impact of what has happened, you know, the trauma, you know, the mental well-being, like those will be things that we will have to wrestle with for, you know, for a time to come, um, for for the emotional and physical toll that this experience has taken on the thousands of women who will give birth during this period. Yeah. And their infants, you know. Trauma lasts a while, good long while, yeah. A good long while, right? And we've seen how the studies have shown that it could embed in your DNA and you could pass that on. And what we know about what my mom experienced when I was in, in utero in her womb has impacted me, right? Has impacted me. Um, and so this interconnectedness, I mean, we're learning about it in many ways through this pandemic, but it is certainly true when we think about the mother-baby experience, what we're exposed to, whether that's a lot of stress hormones in, you know, when we're in the womb, all of that matters. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see what the lingering impacts are, even after the pandemic has passed. So we touched on it a little earlier, patriarchy, matriarchy, midwifery. And I want to talk a little bit about why, once again, midwifery is a huge solution. Now, I know that in New York, midwives can see prenatal patients and do, a lot of them, um, but very few actually provide patient care in maternity units. They're not the ones delivering the babies. You know, they, you might see a midwife for most of your prenatal care, but then when it's time to actually have the baby, that's when OBGYNs take over. And I know there are a couple of hospitals where midwives do deliver, but not that many. And I interviewed several doctors about this subject a few years back for an article I was writing, and their response seemed to revolve around the answer of, well, there's just no real estate for them. It's such a crowded 
place and our maternity units are already crowded. Oh my God. Where oh my would God. we put them? Where would we put them? Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, first of all, we, I mean, this first needs to be addressed with the core issue and the most, one of the many, but one of the most important things that I bring out in this article is that what we're dealing with is the root cause, which is the medicalization of birth yep. and then the subsequent criminalization of midwives. And until we start looking at that, there is no space for them. They don't need space. So there's no reason for women to be in a hospital unless you're receiving obstetric care. We know that pretty much in every other country, no one ever sees an, uh, an OBGYN unless there is a reason, a complication, a medical necessity, and that midwives actually birth babies in other places. Um, and so this is an excuse because, as we know, this idea of suppressing and controlling women has also been a matter of suppressing and controlling women who help women. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen as birth became more medicalized and the medical um, system became the authority. They have worked very hard to criminalize midwives. I mean, even in New York State, which I consider to be one of the more progressive states, midwives cannot attend home births legally. Um, we do have a few hospitals who have been referring units where women are only seen by midwives unless um, necessary, unless necessary, but that is also within a hospital system. And so the fact that women have been forced into hospitals when birth is not a medical event is now causing problems. And look at other countries. I shared a tweet and I link it in the article of this um, of an example of the Dutch midwives who were birthing women in a hotel. They were turning they turned this hotel into birthing rooms, which allowed the hospital to be free for those who actually needed obstetric care. Mm -hmm. So the idea that midwives even need to be in a hospital doesn't make any sense. We, they, they don't need your real estate, <laughs> and the fact that they have, uh, the hospital systems have fought against childbirth centers and other alternatives is part of where we are right now. And so now, instead of women having someplace else to go to give birth, they have to either take an illegal option, technically a legal option, to try to birth at home. As I mentioned in the article, many women were trying to drive to other states where perhaps a home birth is not illegal. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Maybe we're going to get a silver lining out of this. Maybe. Yeah. A girl can dream again. <laughs> a girl can dream. No, there, there needs to be a silver lining. And if there isn't one, we, we have to make it so. Because, you know, what we're learning, um, and, and I did see a news article, I think one person had, that someone shared, it was, maybe it was in L.A., where they had basically set up a little childbirth center in the, in the parking lot, in the parking lot tents um, that was going to be attended by uh, midwives for women who, you know, don't need to be in the hospital. I'm like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now you're talking. Yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, when it serves them, then we see solutions, right? We've been clamoring for this, saying this for years. Um, but I hope that this will also bring in, in our silver linings list, you know, an awakening among women that, wait, why is this happening? And why haven't we fought to have someplace else to birth our babies besides hospitals? I mean, it would do the hospitals a great service to not even have to worry about that. Hospitals are crowded, and they should be focused on people who need it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, 
it's just very distressing because the system is failing women in in ways that doesn't even need to be doesn't even make any sense yeah you know yeah and hospital maternity units are set up like intensive care units complete with their own operating rooms so when you have all of those toys in the toy box you're going to play with them you know doctors are going to use their training and their tools and their